Just think of the stories you may be able to tell about your marriage when you get to that point somewhere down the road. We're in a series, House to Home. We're talking about all different kinds of things. Today we're going to talk a little bit about marriage. And, and yet I don't want you to check out regardless of the fact that you may not be married. You may be dating. You may not be. You may be widowed. You may be divorced. It doesn't matter what stage you're in because the things we're going to talk about from God's Word apply to us at any stage and age. But the focus is, is on marriage. Now, I don't know if last week or not you saw the parade magazine that comes out with the Sunday paper, but the lead article was entitled, Is Your House a Health Threat? And in the opening paragraph, the author makes this observation. Any house, no matter how well cared for, can be a dangerous place. Household accidents cause at least 20,000 deaths every year. Do you realize that? Wow. Poisoning and falls are the top two culprits. Our guide is designed to make your house safer, a place you can't wait to come home to, end quote. And then the article goes on to talk about some things you can do to make your home a safer place. Add an air filtration system, test for radon, uh, be careful what kind of wood you burn in the fireplace. Use an antibacterial wipe on the remote control to get rid of all the germs that the husband leaves there. Remove your shoes when you enter the house. Use a glass cutting board instead of plastic or wood. Uh, and when you reheat your leftovers in the microwave, make sure they get up to 165 degrees so that it zaps any bacteria that's left there. And on and on it went. And, and you, you read articles like that and you think, I can do that. I can make our home a safer place to be. I wish we put as much time, energy, and effort into making our marriages as healthy and safe a place to be as we do our houses that we live in. I, I wish we could describe our marriages today as a place you just can't wait to come home to. You see, relationships in this world aren't easy. That uh, They take work and sometimes we realize that what we thought it was going to be, it isn't. Or in the words of one young lady breaking up with her boyfriend, she said, I will always cherish my initial misconception of you. <laughs> marriage isn't easy either but then we really shouldn't be surprised at that you know at a wedding the bride marries the groom not the best man <laughs> it'll get better <laughs> so for a few minutes let me talk to you a little bit about three essentials and three obstacles okay uh, in any marriage actually any relationship that that we share in life and remember this too, in a marriage it takes both partners working together and committed to all of these things. You may live them out to your fullest, you may do your best with it, but if your spouse is not committed to that marriage, it doesn't matter how badly you want to keep it together, it won't stay together. Both of you have to want to keep it together. So here are these three essentials. There are more than these, but these are the three I'm going to list this morning. And the first one is simply this, a Christ-centered home. Both of you, I believe, have the best shot at making your marriage viable if you are committed to Jesus Christ and his lordship. A home that has no spiritual dimension is greatly at risk. Or a home where you have one partner is a Christian and one partner is an unbeliever, it is at great risk. And that shows utter disregard for what God's word has taught us. Throughout the Old Testament period of time, God always encouraged his people to marry within the faith. And then we come to the book of 2 Corinthians where Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. 
For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? You see, I don't think that just applies to marriage. I think that applies to business relationships, friendships, anything. But it certainly does apply to our marriages because no place are we more yoked together than we are in a marriage. So do yourself and your marriage a favor. Don't compromise by marrying an unbeliever. And if you're married to an unbeliever, keep praying for him or her and demonstrate in your own life what Christian virtues are in hopes that God will do a work in, in your spouse and bring them to a relationship with Christ. With regard to this Christ-centeredness, there, there are some things that ought to be present in your home. I suspect if you had a church wedding to begin with, there were a couple prayers, at least in that ceremony. It was a good way to start. should be a good way to continue. I, I would suggest to you that, that prayer is not just for the individual, it's also for the couple. That you ought to learn to pray together. Sure, there's going to be a lot of times you're going to pray alone because you have things that you need to deal with with God. But there's times when you need to pray together because that's, well, it's just helpful. You know, prayer is not a way to manipulate the will of God. Prayer is not the equivalent of a Christian's four-leaf clover. Prayer is seeking God's will and blessing in your life, his purpose, his design, his correction in our lives. And that goes for our marriage as well. And, And let me tell you this too. If there's things going on that are really tough in your marriage right now, it's hard to pray with somebody and be mad at them at the same time. It's hard to be frustrated and, and then pray together. There's something about praying together that helps you to put things in the right perspective. So make sure in this Christ-centered home, prayer is a part of it. And then make sure you are a student of God's Word. You know, the Bible has got to be more than just something that adorns your bookshelf or an app that's on your iPhone that you never push. You see, it's nice to have it there, but if we don't read it, if we don't put it into our hearts and our minds, it's not going to do us a bit of good. But the Bible has great wisdom on our relationships. It has great wisdom on marriages. For instance, if we could just practice and live out 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter of the Bible, if we could just live out that description of love, few of our marriages would be in trouble. Here's some other passages. Proverbs 12, 4, it says, A wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a disgraceful wife is like decay in his bones. Works the other way around, too. You see, when we live nobly, we exalt our partner. When we don't, it's like decay in the very heart and soul of our being. Proverbs 15, verse 17 and 18 says, Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. A hot-tempered man stirs up dissension, but a patient man calms a quarrel. Proverbs 10, 12, Hatred stirs up dissension, but love, love covers all wrongs. And then Ecclesiastes 9, 9. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. Solomon kind of tapers off there into a little bit of negativity, all your meaningless days. But the first part is beautiful. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love. Because really, it's not negative. He's just saying, apart from these important relationships and serving God, everything else is meaningless. Everything else is empty. You see, the Bible is filled with great wisdom, and without it, you won't know God. And if you don't know God, your marriage has no real foundation. And, and this body here, the church, ought to be a part of your lives, too. I mean, we are the bride of Christ. 
marriage is his greatest illustration of his love for us, the bride. And we ought to be a place where you can be encouraged in your relationship, or if your relationship or your marriage is struggling, that you find help to help put it back together. And, and you really ought to worship together. If, if you make your spouse attend church by his or herself, that, that's, that's, the, that's the wrong thing, all right? Uh, you you need to know that you go with your spouse. Find a church where you both can enjoy going. I hope that's here, but if it's not here, at least find a place where you can both go together because finding that unity in a body of believers is so vitally important. You see, part of the problem with marriage is that we oftentimes leave God out of the picture. Alexander Solzhenitsyn once wrote, he said, if I were called upon to identify briefly the principal trait of the entire 20th century, here, too, I would be unable to find anything more precise and pithy than to repeat once again, men have forgotten God, end quote. And I would say what is true of his observation of the 20th century is also true of what I see in the 21st century and what I see in troubled marriages. In troubled marriages, husbands and wives have forgotten God. You want a solid relationship, build it on a Christ-centered home. And then here's something else. Uh, an essential is open communication. Communication in marriage has changed a lot through the last several years. It used to be said that the three most important words a husband could whisper in his wife's ear were these, I love you. Now they are, let's eat out. <laughs> now what hasn't changed, though, is the importance of good communication. One husband was overheard to say, honey, what do you mean we don't communicate? Just yesterday I texted you or replied to the recorded message you left on my cell phone in answer to my email. And there's too much truth to that to really be funny because the fact is that we spend so much time with electronic communication that we have forgotten how to talk face-to-face. -face. And I'm here to tell you, electronic communication in a marriage is more detrimental than it is helpful because, you see, you cannot communicate heart and you cannot communicate depth of soul and you cannot communicate what you're really feeling through the words of an email and through the words of a text. And so for husbands and wives, put down the equipment and go face to face. And when you do communicate, listen more than you talk because listening helps us communicate better. A couple who does not find time to communicate will ultimately find themselves no longer a couple. That's not easy to communicate. And sometimes communication can be painful, especially when you're doing something that your spouse points out, that, that can be painful, but it can be so helpful and may transform your relationship. <laughs> Proverbs 21 verse 19 says, better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife. So writes the man with 700 wives, Solomon. <laughs> From a woman's perspective, I've been told that having a conversation with a man is like putting a saddle on a cow. It's a lot of trouble and work, and after you've done it, you ask yourself the question, what's the point? <laughs> so husbands and wives learn to communicate, all right? Talk and listen. Listen and talk. Now, there's a lot more to be said about communication, but that's next Sunday, okay? So we'll talk more of that. And then there needs to be a commitment to one another. Uh, I had a wedding again yesterday, and every time I, I, I go through a wedding, I am reminded of these unique traditions that often we celebrate in a wedding ceremony. Do, do you know why the bride stands to the left side of the groom at a wedding? It's because he uses his right hand to protect her, to draw his sword and protect. 
you know why we wear a wedding band on our fingers? It's because the, the band is, rep represents that which ties together, like a wheat sheaf or a barley sheaf out in the field where they would take extra strands of the wheat and they would tie it off in the center and cinch it up tight or they would use some twine or rope and they'd cinch it up tight so that the sheaves would stand in the field and dry out and, and be protected that way. Much in that way we are bound together as a husband and wife and that's why it's a wedding band to be symbolic of that tying it off together and we wear it in the western world at least we wear it on our left hand on the uh, uh, fourth finger because the ancient Romans believed that there was a vein in that fourth finger that went directly to the heart. Beautiful picture. All pictures of commitment, however. Beautiful pictures of commitment. I think part of the problem with marriages today is that we've lost that whole element of commitment. Check those vows again, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish so long as we both shall live. That's commitment. I'm in it for the long haul is what we say when we speak those words. When Elsie's folks had celebrated their 60th anniversary, they were asked how they'd stayed together for six decades. At different times, they both responded similarly. I didn't know we had a choice. They said it with a wonderful twinkle in their eye as they look back over six wonderful decades in a family and all those incredible memories. But really, really, that hits at the, at the heart of commitment. I, I really don't have a choice. I made my choice. Now I'm going to make this choice work. That's commitment. Too often times in marriages today, it's, it's what we're getting out of the relationship, what this relationship is doing for me, and how am I gaining anything from this relationship? And we look at marriage from what it's doing for me, and when we do that, we have this dangerous position of saying, you know what, I think I might be able to do better with someone else. And so we pack up all of our emotional baggage and we walk out of one relationship into the other, not realizing that the problem in the first was the emotional baggage that I'm carrying and we take that into the next relationship and have the same problems. Why? Because we take ourselves into that relationship. Oftentimes the next relationship is not better. It's because we didn't take the time to work through the problems. Be committed. In a good marriage, it's not what the marriage can do for me, it's what I can do for the marriage. This week, Roger overheard a conversation in a doctor's office waiting area, the doctor was asking a sweet older couple how long they had been married. It was more than 50 years. And he looked at the man and he said, what's your secret? And the man said, I wake up each morning and think how I can make her life easier today. Isn't that a beautiful response? Roger said the doctor didn't know quite how to respond. He just kind of stood there and enjoyed that moment. If all of us approached our marriages with that kind of commitment, what can I do to make his life or her life easier today? Our marriages would survive better. Here are three quick obstacles. One of them is finances. There is perhaps no subject that can cause as much distress as money in a marriage. The lack of it, the surplus of it, the use of it, the spending of it, the saving of it, the indebtedness of it, every aspect of money in the home is a potential breeding ground for contention and strife in a marriage. So be very careful how you deal with money issues. Now most people think it's not having enough money, and that's a problem because you have to separate it out, make it go out, and, and when your kids have to do without something, that makes it even harder between husbands and wives, and there's sometimes a division that comes there. 
But it's not about the amount. People who have more money they can spend in a lifetime have as disastrous a relationship over money as those who don't have enough money. You see, it's not the amount, it's the attitude toward it and how we use it that makes the difference. So here's some things to remember. Be ever so careful with credit. It is so easy in our culture and it is so damaging to your relationship. Don't get in debt unless you have to. Don't get in over your head especially. And then decide who's best at handling the finances and let that spouse take care of it all. If one of the two of you is better with the checkbook or better with budgeting, then let that spouse handle it. Communicate about it with, it, with both of you, but let the one who does it best handle it best. Make a budget and work the budget together. Decide on your major purchases together. Don't go out and spend money that you don't have to buy something that your spouse thinks is a stupid decision to begin with. Share those before you make the choice. And then honor the Lord out of your income first and he'll provide. I, I really believe this principle is, is important. God has said, give me the first fruits. Give back to God. It's a, it's a matter of trust with God. And, and by God providing, I don't mean that if you put a $20 bill into the offering plate this morning when it was passed, that somehow before the day is over, you're going to find $25 somewhere else that you weren't expecting. That's not what I mean by providing. God may do that, but there's no promise that he'll do that. But I have lived by the principle, and I've seen it work over and over again, that the nine-tenths that we keep, Plus, God's blessing, however that is, is always worth more than the ten tenths that we started with. Because God says, if you put me first, I'll take care of you. And he does. So, be careful with the money. Here's another obstacle. Be careful with overcommitment. You'll get asked a lot of opportunities. To, you could be a part of this club, to be a part of that event, or be a part of this variety of things and stuff that's going on. And yet, at the same time, uh, that overcommitment is just really tough. And so, when you take on too much, you're putting your marriage at risk. So here's my suggestion. Learn to say no to the other things so that you don't have to say no to your marriage. Organizations will survive without you. Your marriage won't. So don't get overcommitted to too many things. And then be cautious about being self-centered. Selfishness is an obstacle in any marriage. Paul Simon of the Simon and Garfunkel uh, duet uh, wrote a song that they did years ago. Some of you will remember it. It was called I, I Am a Rock. And the, the, the second stanza of that song goes like this. I've built walls, a fortress, deep and mighty, that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving. I disdain. I'm a rock. I'm an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. If that describes you this morning, I would suggest that you remain single. <laughs> Please. Because I'm here to tell you is that the problem is that the spouses and children of rocks and islands do feel pain, and they do cry, because when it's all about me, then they're the ones that suffer. In the turbulent seas of life, there is really only one island and one rock that you need, and that's the rock of ages, Jesus Christ. That's an island that'll get you through. That's a rock to build your marriage on. Let me wind it all up by returning to a passage that we read last week from Ephesians chapter 5. 
And, and we, we kind of, you know, we can gloss over these so quickly, but there is a nugget of profound truth to be found in verse 33 of Ephesians 5, and this is the way it reads. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Do you see those two elements there? Love and respect. The husband is supposed to love his wife. The wife is supposed to respect her husband. Dr. Emerson Eckrich notes in a survey about, a, about conflict in marriage that when 7,000 people were interviewed and asked this question, when you're in a conflict with your spouse, do you feel unloved or feel disrespected? That 83% of the men said disrespected, 72% of the women said unloved. Isn't that interesting? Both were given the same scenario. Both were given the same choices. The men said, I feel disrespected. The women said, I feel unloved. And he writes about the fact that without love from him, wives re, uh, react without respect. And without respect from her, husbands react without love. It is a crazy cycle that just feeds on itself. He's, he's got a whole ministry. He's written a book on love and respect. It's a great book. It's a great principle that, that you know, it may be something you need to read because here's the point. God wired us differently and sometimes we don't understand each other. And that is that we men need to be respected by our wives you wives need to be loved deeply by us, your husbands. And when we get those things out of balance, it doesn't work right because we're wired differently. And here in this simple verse, God lays a foundation for the very principle of how he wired us. Men, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. And when we can put that together, marriage works. And then Peter adds this in his little letter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Whether it's in the body of Christ or whether it's in our families or whether it's in our marriages, love each other deeply because that will get you past all kinds of problems. That's the kind of love that I hope we develop here as a church family. I hope that's the kind of love that we foster in the relationships and the marriages that are here. A stubborn kind of love that does not give up, give in, or give out. Those are the kind of marriages I want us to enjoy. Earlier in the service, you heard Brian and Carla portraying the lives of Hosea and Gomer, this Old Testament prophet that's found among the minor prophets of the Old Testament, if you want to go home and read the whole story. It is always one of those stories that, that is bittersweet. I've loved the story for a long time because I just, I just marvel at Hosea, this man who could marry a woman who was a prostitute and love her with an undying kind of love, even though she just never quite bought into the marriage like he did. And they had three kids. Their, their oldest was a son. His name was Jezreel. They named him Jezreel, which was a bloody valley just outside of Jerusalem. And it represented all the blood and sacrifice of people making sacrifices to other gods and the unfaithfulness of the people. And then they had a daughter. Her name was Loruhema, which means no more mercy. And then they had a third child, a son again, and they named him Loami, which means not my own, not my people. 
in the lives of Hosea and Gomer, God is weaving his story of his relationship with his own people. God, who loved his people more than life itself, is now finding them going off because they are restless, restless and they cannot be comfortable with God. And, and the beautiful part of the story is that where, where Gomer has left and she's attached herself to another man and Hosea leaves home and he goes and buys her back, pays money, 15 shekels, to buy back the wife that was already his. I look at that and I think, what an incredible love. And the whole story is actually God's story about us. That, that's our story. We're, we're Gomer. We're the one that keeps running off. We're the ones that are restless. We're the ones that keep leaving God. And he's the one that keeps longing for us and who has actually bought us back at the price of his own son's blood. Hundreds of years before the coming of the Christ, the story of Hosea and Gomer tell of God's love for us. I'm here to tell you this morning that if you want your marriage to be sound and solid, it's got to begin with your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't know him as your Savior, while we stand and while we sing, you come to him.